Welcome to some very famous people you've never really heard of. Bite-sized biographies of the famous, the infamous, and the quirky in less than an hour. My name is Philip D. Gibbons, and there is more information about me, this podcast, and a bibliography at someveryfamouspeople.com. There are also photographs of many of the individuals and items mentioned in this podcast. At the conclusion of part one of this presentation, there will be additional suggestions concerning further information about today's subject, Theodore John Kaczynski, Jr., also known as the Unabomber. Now let's get started with our story about Ted Kaczynski. On May 25, 1978, a female was walking across a parking lot on the University of Illinois Chicago campus when she observed an unattended parcel lying in the lot near the engineering department. Addressed to a member of the faculty at Rensselaer Polytechnic Institute, the package had $10 worth of postage stamps affixed but had not been mailed. The woman attempted to place the package in a mailbox, but it wouldn't fit. A return addressed to a Professor Buckley Christ at Northwestern University prompted the individual to call the professor in nearby Evanston. But Christ informed the caller that he did not know anyone at RPI and had certainly not mailed such a package. He had the package messengered to his office and then called campus security when he discovered that the handwriting on the package was not his. By the time a police officer arrived, there was a small group of people, including Christ and his secretary, who were curiously awaiting an examination of the package. When the officer, Terry Marker, began to remove the parcel's brown paper wrapping, it exploded. Fortunately, the detonation consisted of a modest flame that merely burnt Marker's left hand. The device, a crude instrument fashioned from household junk and match heads with a modest amount of gunpowder. A federal agency, the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms, was informed. The bomb debris collected and analyzed. On May 9, 1979, a cigar box lying between cubicles in a classroom at Northwestern attracted the attention of John Harris, a graduate student. Thinking that this seemingly discarded box would make a useful container, Harris removed the tape on the lid and opened the box. This action initiated an interior electrical current that resulted in the box exploding with enough force to repel Harris's eyeglasses and send wooden splinters everywhere. It took a fire extinguisher to put out the small blaze that resulted, Harris only receiving cursory cuts and burns. No connection was made to the previous year's incident that occurred at Northwestern. On November 15, 1979, American Flight 444 was en route to Washington, D.C.'s National Airport from Chicago O'Hare when an explosion occurred in the cargo hold of the plane. The pilots became alarmed as thick black smoke increasingly began to fill the cabin. They requested an emergency landing at Dulles Airport, which was executed at twice the normal descending speed. Passengers eventually fleeing the aircraft passed waiting emergency vehicles. Eleven individuals were treated for smoke inhalation, but the flight's passengers and crew were lucky. A bomb mailed airmail in a package contained an altimeter designed to detonate an explosive mixture at 2,000 feet. Had this detonation occurred successfully, the plane would have crashed, most likely killing all of its passengers. Instead, the device merely ignited, causing a dangerous but ultimately less malevolent event. At this point, the FBI was notified of the attempted sabotage, and the agency's top explosives expert, Chris Ronay, quickly connected to three Chicago-related incidents. Similarities in the devices, and even the prevalence of $1 Eugene O'Neill postage stamps, were noted, but the FBI and other agencies were completely mystified as to who the perpetrator of these acts might be. An even more meticulous but bizarre incident quickly added urgency to this investigation. In early June 1980, the president of United Airlines, Percy Wood, received a letter at his Lake Forest, Illinois home from an individual unknown to him. 
The letter was signed by an Enoch Fisher, who promised to send Wood a book of great social significance, a book that should be read by all prominent corporate executives. On June 10, 1980, coincidentally Wood's birthday, the United President personally walked to his street-side mailbox and retrieved a package wrapped in brown shipping paper and tied with twine. Wood took this parcel inside his suburban home, into the kitchen. Oddly, the package was addressed to Percy Addison Wood, a middle name the executive almost never used. As he unwrapped the parcel, it quickly became clear that it contained a book entitled Ice Brothers, a novel written by American author Sloan Wilson. Wilson had also written a more famous work, the anti-establishment The Man in the Gray Flannel Suit, but Wood immediately wondered why anyone would send him this particular obscure novel. He attempted to open it to try to find an inscription or note, but even this was confusing. Many of the front pages stuck to the book's cover. Unfortunately for Wood, a hollowed-out section in the center of the book contained an explosive device that was triggered when he opened it. Gunpowder within a metal pipe ignited, and the sealed device quickly exploded, sending shrapnel and large pieces of the pipe everywhere. One knocked a large hole in the first-floor ceiling. Another smashed into Wood's thigh. His upper body was thoroughly punctured with metal and wooden debris, Wood having been purposefully glued to the device. The blast was powerful enough to seriously burn the executive's hands, although the shock rendered them numb. Wood was able to walk to a neighbor's home. He was rushed to a hospital by ambulance, hospitalized, and required surgery to remove fragments embedded in his face, upper torso, and thighs. He would make a full recovery while the FBI, already familiar with similar bombing attempts originating in the Chicago area, immediately coordinated with local law enforcement to conduct a detailed investigation. They noted that this bomb was more sophisticated than previous efforts, had actually detonated as planned, and was clearly meant to seriously injure or kill its recipient, a very prominent member of the business community. Although its significance was not understood at the time, a metal disc which was bolted on the end of the pipe had the initials FC tapped into its surface. The FBI concluded that all four bombs were the work of the same individual or group, but they had no idea what the inscription meant. The lethality of this attack and the indication that this entity would strike again caused the Bureau to form a coordinated effort to locate a perpetrator they designated as Unibomb, an acronym formed by the juxtaposition of UN from universities and A from airlines. Over time, this designation would be personalized to the less bureaucratic and media-friendly designation of Unibomber. It would take a total of 18 years and the most expensive and extraordinary investigation in U.S. criminal history to finally detain the individual responsible for these and subsequent attacks. But who exactly was responsible for these frighteningly random and seemingly senseless bombings? And what was the motivation behind the remarkably ingenious but increasingly more vicious methods employed by this elusive and bizarre individual? Most biographies only spend several pages, or perhaps just a few paragraphs, on the childhood of even the most prominent of subjects. But in the case of Theodore John Ted Kaczynski, Jr., also known as the Unabomber, a thorough examination of his childhood personality, education, and upbringing is essential to understanding both his behavior and his ability to outwit and evade capture for such an extraordinary length of time. Ted Kaczynski was born on May 22, 1942, in Chicago, Illinois. His father, Theodore Ted Sr., spent much of his adult working life as a sausage maker in a factory owned by a relative. His mother, Wanda, was a teacher and child care provider. Both of the elder Kaczynskis came from working-class Polish backgrounds, and despite neither graduating from high school, they were well-read, intellectual, and politically progressive. Wanda especially intended to raise Ted and eventually her second son, David, in an environment that was not as bleak as the working-class existence that typified both her and her husband's backgrounds. Originally, the couple was thrilled with their newborn first child, initially perceived as a normal and typically happy infant. But in all of the many interviews that she endured 
After her infamous son's arrest, Wanda recounted an incident that occurred when Ted was nine months old. The child suddenly developed a severe allergic reaction that induced pronounced hives all over his body, requiring hospitalization. Naked, placed in splints to prevent itching, and pinned to the bed mattress to prevent interference with ointments and bandages, Ted's parents were also only permitted to visit him twice during his month-long hospital stay, and then for only an hour at a time. This confinement, terrifying for such a young child, seemed to have a profound effect on his formerly gregarious personality. He returned from the hospital, unresponsive to attention and affection, refusing to even look his parents in the eye. As a youngster, Ted did develop a precocious interest in reading, math, and science, his mother reading to him articles from Scientific American that he could comprehend by the time he was six. He excelled in grade school, but even at this young age was determined to avoid contact with others, usually spending time by himself in his room with the door shut, especially when visitors came to his home. When he was seven, an aunt recalled that the birth of his brother David seemed to affect him in a profoundly negative way, inducing a feeling that his parents might no longer pay attention to him. When Ted was 10, Kaczynski's parents moved the family to Evergreen Park, a nicer, more middle-class suburb on Chicago's south side. While his brother David assimilated successfully into the new neighborhood, making friends and developing into a normally outgoing child, his older brother remained withdrawn and was perceived as a loner. Nevertheless, in school, he demonstrated a gifted intellect, especially in science and math, so much so that it was recommended that he skip a grade. Kaczynski moved on to Evergreen Park Community High School. On paper, he might have seemed to be the model student. He joined the school band playing the trombone and became a member of the math, coin, biology, and German clubs. Classmates described him as the smartest kid in his class. But his inability to fit in socially and his self-imposed isolation from any normal high school activities like sock hops and athletic events underlined his almost stereotypical profile as the quintessential nerd, complete with glasses, pencil pocket protector, slight physical stature, and painfully shy personality. Most troubling was his fascination with constructing explosive devices both at school and in a makeshift lab at home, instruments strong enough to blow up a garbage can and break out a window in a classroom, not to mention damaging a classmate's hearing. Despite this quirky behavior, Ted breezed through high school, excelled academically, and was a National Merit Scholarship finalist, skipped another grade, and graduated at the age of 16. For Ted, prodded by his academically ambitious parents, there seemed one obvious subsequent scholastic aspiration, Harvard University. Although certainly aware of his social dysfunction, the elder Kaczynski's never involved psychologists or any other mental health professionals, meeting only with school guidance counselors. The rationale for Harvard was that Ted might come out of his shell in an environment with such a focus on academics and intellect, unlike the middle-class neighborhood where he stuck out as both extremely introverted and an oddball. And he did receive a scholarship, which made attendance economically feasible. That he was about to enter one of the most socially and materialistically intimidating American institutions as a public school-educated 16-year-old was viewed as an achievement and not a potential handicap. Although it was probably meant as a designation to nurture and protect younger, overachieving freshmen who might have been completely overwhelmed in a typically large Harvard dormitory, upon arrival, Kaczynski was assigned to a smaller, specific residence at 8 Prescott Street, outside of Harvard Yard and technically off campus. Only 16 students lived at this location. Six, including Kaczynski, occupied single rooms, in his case allowing him to avoid even the typical roommate that most freshmen coexisted with. Most were public school graduates from outside of New England and math majors. It was the perfect assignment for an individual who was socially inept and prone to spending most of his time behind a closed door, which is exactly what Ted did. Predictably, he aced his science-oriented classes and got B's and C's in the humanities. For his sophomore year, Kaczynski wound up on the fourth floor of Elliott House, 
much of the student housing was even more snobbish than some of the other Harvard accommodations with spacious suites housing as many as seven roommates, most having chosen each other after developing a relationship during freshman year. But part of Elliott's fourth floor was reserved for those students who could not get or did not want a roommate. Although he had suite mates, he rarely, if ever, interacted with them. Other than to pay his share of the phone bill or other necessities, money extracted on a monthly basis. Almost as quirky as Ted, even they got so concerned about the condition of his room that they asked the house headmaster, a kind of adult supervisor, to intercede. When the master, John Finley, was admitted, he found a living space with two feet of paper strewn on the ground, a foul odor and general disorganization. Although literally ordered to clean up his room, this intervention only served to further alienate Ted from his sweetmates. As if Ted Kaczynski needed any more difficulty adjusting to Harvard, he wound up getting recruited into a psychological study supervised by noted psychologist Henry Murray, the director of the Harvard Psychological Clinic. Murray had worked with the OSS during World War II, and much of his work and experimentation at Harvard was rumored to be funded by the CIA as part of its MK Ultra program to develop methods of brainwashing and torture in an effort to break down an individual's will and elicit information and confessions. The study involving Ted consisted of exposing subjects to extremely stressful conditions involving ridicule, condescension, and outright insults. Years later, actual tape recordings and transcripts of these one-on-one -on -one sessions conducted by a specially coached older graduate student would be introduced at trial sessions that were clearly abusive, in which Kaczynski was called stupid, his ideas childlike, and even featured criticism of his dress and personal appearance. The latter was already a sensitive area for Ted, who could not afford the typically buttoned-down wardrobe of his student peers. In his day, Henry Murray was considered one of the most respected innovators in academia and a greatly respected theoretician. Today, his experiments would be considered unethical, and Murray's reputation has been tarnished. But much of his work and his psychological test known as the Thematic Apperception Test, or TAT, a test measuring an individual's fundamental personality and motivations, is still in use today. Kaczynski described this experience to his brother as, quote, the worst experience of my life, unquote, but insisted on participating to prove that he could take it and couldn't be broken. Kaczynski graduated from Harvard in 1962 with a degree in mathematics and a modest GPA of 3.12. From Harvard, Kaczynski entered the University of Michigan as a grad student, PhD candidate, and teaching assistant. He also applied to Berkeley and the University of Chicago, who accepted him, but unlike Michigan, did not provide any financial aid. An average student at Harvard, Kaczynski excelled at Michigan, impressing his professors as uniquely talented, able to complete equations that no other student had ever solved, and even won the Subner B. Myers Prize awarded to the student who presented the most outstanding mathematics thesis of the year, an annual award still noted on a campus plaque. He was perceived as quiet and studious, without a trace of any kind of antisocial personality traits. But beneath the surface, Kaczynski's hostility and a kind of condescending arrogance was beginning to percolate to a boil. He personally felt that his academic excellence was the result of low standards, felt his fellow students and especially his professors were sloppy, unprepared, and occasionally completely incompetent. His teaching ability was also felt to be only average. His main difficulty was interacting consistently and positively with his students a not surprising flaw considering his completely withdrawn lifestyle and outlook. And Kaczynski's social life became even more grim, a man now in his early 20s who had never had a meaningful relationship of any kind with a female and seemed incapable of ever developing one. About the rooming house he lived in near the completion of his time at Michigan, he complained to the school about two students audibly having sex in an adjacent room, probably an environment that only added to his frustration. Kaczynski's sexual repression became so pronounced that he even considered speaking with a university psychiatrist to discuss a possible sex change and his feelings about such a transition, but eventually never broached the topic. 
instead disingenuously discussing an alleged depression over the possibility of being drafted. Kaczynski left Michigan in 1967. By then his personality had crystallized and he had had a semblance of a plan moving forward. He accepted a job as an assistant professor at Cal Berkeley, but this position was merely a means to an end. Ted merely wished to accrue enough money to be able to buy some property in a remote wilderness area, hopefully in Canada, and his personal frustration and repression was now also generating fantasies about killing people. It would be 11 years before Ted Kaczynski acted upon any of these urges, but he left Michigan transformed by what he later called, quote, the worst five years of my life, unquote. Kaczynski began teaching at Berkeley in 1967, and despite criticism from some of his students who claimed he refused to answer questions, taught uninspired lessons verbatim out of textbooks, and didn't seem to care about them, he headed down a tenure track. But he never established any meaningful relationship with his peers and abruptly attempted to resign twice, once in January of 1969 and again in March when his resignation, effective at the end of the spring school year, was reluctantly accepted by his departmental supervisor, John Addison. To Professor Addison, Kaczynski expressed his disgust with the rampant drug use on campus. He did not smoke or drink and the school's political turmoil and the fear that his mathematical research would be used to further destroy the environment. He also expressed a desire to completely leave the field of mathematics, despite having no idea what he would do in the future. Kaczynski also sent a letter to his shocked but still supportive parents, explaining his resignation over concerns about mathematics' role in the development of technology, endangering society's freedom and self-determination. Although he spent time living in his parents' house, his eventually unrealized goal was to receive a homesteading permit from the Canadian government. When this fell through, and after squabbling with his parents, he abruptly left their suburban home, leaving them a note which ominously talked about having to go his own way, not to worry about him, and apologizing if he had disappointed them. Unannounced, he then drove from suburban Chicago directly to Great Falls, Montana, to the residence of his brother David. Alerted by his parents that Ted might be heading his way, David was actually relieved to see him, his father having read him the note, which indicated a potentially self-destructive finality. Ted Kaczynski's most meaningful relationship in life was probably with his brother. As a child and teenager, David Kaczynski, younger by seven years, idolized Ted. He had great respect for Ted's remarkable intelligence intellectual awareness, and tended to minimize Ted's inability to form meaningful relationships and utter social dysfunction. David even attempted to emulate his only sibling, graduating from high school a year early and even applying to Harvard unsuccessfully. Upon graduation from Columbia, David also adopted an anti-establishment course of action, heading west to Montana and a blue-collar job at a zinc smelter. When he got to Great Falls, Ted matter-of-factly asked him if David would like to split the cost of buying some land in a remote area of Montana. David didn't hesitate, pleased that his frequently withdrawn sibling was interested in including him in his future plans. On June 19, 1971, David and Ted Kaczynski met with a local rancher in Lincoln, Montana. The man named Cliff Gehring owned a large ranch outside of Lincoln and was looking to sell a 1.4-acre parcel of land that was part of his property. Although situated amidst rugged pine forest and beautiful mountain vistas, the land had no access to electricity or indoor plumbing. Most buyers might have resisted such a primitive piece of property, but for what Ted had in mind, subsistence living in a cabin he intended to build himself, it was an ideal location. The three men struck a deal, $2,100 for the parcel, with one dollar down. Gehring's ancestors had farmed and logged on their ranch since the middle of the 19th century, and he was familiar with all sorts of people like Ted and David, anxious to escape the rat race for rural Montana, Ted explaining his background as a Berkeley professor. Cliff Gehring could not have guessed at another ulterior motive on Ted's mind, Kaczynski already having written in a personal journal in April 1971, quote, my motive for doing what I am doing is simply personal revenge, unquote. 
Ted relocated to Lincoln and, assisted by his brother and the son of Clifford Gehring, nicknamed Butch, quickly built a primitive hut, approximately 10 by 12 feet, with the only heat provided by a potbelly stove. Ted stayed with his brother briefly while the structure was completed. Butch Gehring operated a nearby sawmill, so cheap lumber wasn't a problem. Plumbing was a bucket that Ted would eventually use to fertilize his garden, showering regularly, not high on his list of priorities. There was no electricity, the only light provided by numerous candles. Over time, soot, dust, and filth became prevalent in the ramshackle structure. Initially, and possibly because he needed their help, Kaczynski maintained a cordial relationship with Gehring and his first wife, Tammy. Cliff Gehring passed away relatively quickly after Ted moved to Lincoln, and Butch remained his closest neighbor after building a nearby log cabin about a quarter of a mile from Ted's hut. He occasionally stopped by the Gehring house, usually when he needed to borrow a truck to haul in lumber or some large object. In return, Kaczynski would help Butch with tasks related to finishing construction of the Gehring cabin. Gehring quickly picked up on Ted's ability to do math computations involving measurements in his head, much faster than anyone he had ever worked with. Typically hospitable, the Gehrings routinely invited Ted to stay for dinner and a game of cards. For several months, he interacted with them consistently, although he always rebuffed any conversation about his personal or professional life, always changing the subject and never initiating conversation. He painted rocks and gave them to Gehring's infant daughter, Jamie, and even carved the child a wooden cup. Eventually, after he had repaid his obligation, the Gehrings would only occasionally encounter Ted on his way into the town of Lincoln, about four miles away. In winter, they wondered how he survived the frigid Montana temperatures, but he was not unlike many of the individuals living in the area, attempting a non-traditional way of life. Although Kaczynski was close to a tiny town and had several neighbors in close proximity, his connection to the outside world quickly became more constrained. His brother quit his blue-collar job, got an education degree, and moved back to the Midwest to begin a teaching career. When Ted's truck broke down, he did not repair it, giving it away. His bicycle now is only mode of transport. But Ted also made a crucial connection with another nearby resident, Chris Waits, who lived about a mile from Kaczynski's property. Waits would occasionally pass Ted on the road into town and always offered him a ride. And one day after many offers, Kaczynski finally relented. Also, a typically hospitable Montanan, Waits, after finding out that Ted lacked a lot of tools necessary for the upkeep of his property, mentioned that he had a machine shop and library that Ted was welcome to use at any time. This seemingly benign offer had consequences that were both dreadful and unforeseen, but it would be years before Ted Kaczynski finally took advantage of this facility. As the 70s progressed, Ted became more familiar with his environment, hiking into the wilderness areas near his home and enjoying the rugged and mostly pristine Montana backcountry. But the depth of Kaczynski's ever-increasing rage, alienation, and hostility prevented him from fully enjoying his solitude. In his journals, he ranted against the constant incursions of the modern world, dirt bikers and snowmobilers illegally speeding noisily along the nearby trails, the screech from the nearby sawmill, a constant reminder of the degradation of his beloved forest, and even the noise from airplanes and helicopters setting him off. He felt the stress was going to cause him medical harm, and his initially destructive acts were carried out practically in his own backyard. In a journal, he wrote, Some effers built a vacation house just across Stemple Pass Road. Motorcycle and snowmobile fiends. When they were not buzzing up this road, I would hear those cycles growling and growling over by their place all day long. It was getting intolerable. My heart is going bad. Takes exercise okay. But any emotional stress, anger above all, makes it beat irregularly. Risky to commit crime so close to home. But I figured if I did not get those guys, the anger would literally kill me. When they had left the place, I chopped my way into the house, smashed up the interior pretty thoroughly. It was a real luxury place. They also had a mobile home there. I broke into that too, found silver-painted motorcycle inside, smashed it up with their own axe. They had four snowmobiles sitting outside. I thoroughly smashed engines of those with the axe. 
Although the Unabomber eventually gained a reputation for meticulous planning and intelligently and carefully outwitting law enforcement, this reckless behavior could have implicated him way before he began his nationwide terror campaign. Unfortunately, local law enforcement investigated this incident by asking some of Ted's neighbors, like the Gehrings, whether they thought he might be responsible. By then, he had earned the nickname of Teddy the Hermit and was believed to be just a quirky but harmless off-the-grid loner, like several others living in the vicinity. When they described him as such and indicated he would never do such a thing, that was the end of the investigation. Starting with serious vandalism and burglary, Kaczynski was not content to stop there. By 1977, his journal discussed an attempt to actually cause death. I set a booby trap intended to kill someone, but I won't say what kind or where, because if this paper is ever found, the trap might be harmlessly removed. Kaczynski seemed to harbor a special hostility towards helicopters when several were being used to conduct oil company-sponsored seismic exploration in the area, he actually hiked into a remote spot nearby this enterprise and tried to shoot down one of the helicopters with a rifle. He missed, noting in his journal that he actually cried over this failure and his grief about what is happening to this country. Far from any urban area, even miles from any real outpost of civilization, Kaczynski still felt violated. Where can I go now for peace and quiet? Kaczynski's alienation began to involve his relationship with his family. Despite relying on his parents for occasional cash, Kaczynski was especially nasty to his mother, who, unlike his father, was crushed by her son's life choices and tolerated his insulting letters. He would complain if sunflower seeds or any other type of nut they sent were salted, responded to any magazines they sent by insisting they not send any more. More fundamentally disturbing, he increasingly began to berate his parents, claiming that they never really loved him pushed him academically to fulfill their own lack of formal educational success and never really cared about his happiness as long as he was academically successful. But perhaps believing that relocating to an even more remote habitat, perhaps in Canada, might provide the type of complete solitude he craved, Kaczynski decided to move back to his parents' house. Without any money, this plan was impossible to implement. He actually got his family to not only agree but his brother also got him a job at the same foam manufacturing plant that employed his brother David. But Kaczynski had another motive for heading to Chicago. Before he left Montana on a Greyhound bus, he constructed the first of his explosive devices. He meant to send it to a professor at RPI, but when he got to Chicago in late May of 1978, the box wouldn't fit in a mailbox, so he merely left it at the University of Illinois at Chicago in between two parked cars. The device eventually returned to the professor, who it was believed to have mailed it to begin with, via the professor's presumed return address at Northwestern University. But Kaczynski was disappointed when there was not any media mention of what happened with this device. After leaving the bomb, he showed up at his parents' house without any specific notice. In June, he started work at foam-cutting engineers, but by mid-July, he was already jeopardized by an incident that led to his termination. After becoming attracted to a supervisor named Ellen Tarmichael, he asked her out and she agreed to have dinner at a French restaurant. She then consented to another get-together, apple picking and baking, but quickly informed Ted that she was not interested in any further relationship. Ted was not only devastated by the rejection, he felt humiliated and had also hoped the relationship might blossom into something meaningful. On August 22nd, he responded by posting limericks about Ellen in the bathrooms of his workplace. The limericks read, There's a certain young lady named Ellen, whose fanny is very repelling, for the overgrown mass of fat on her ass makes a gross disproportionate swelling. Her girdle's a tight one, of course. It's nylon and steel reinforced. But no matter how hard she squeezes her lard, she still has an ass like a horse. When his brother David, who was also his direct supervisor at the factory, became aware of these postings, he immediately told Ted to stop. Instead, Kaczynski reposted the limerick above the company copying machine, and this time, after his brother went to management, he was fired. With his relationship with his parents already frayed, this incident began a process by which Ted Kaczynski became completely estranged from his brother as well. 
But a complete break did not happen immediately. In fact, Kaczynski's incipient terrorism campaign was given a major boost by his parents' decision to distribute annual gifts to both of their sons in amounts that started with $1,000 checks. Ted would use this and additional money saved from a second job at another Chicago-area manufacturer that he held briefly until mid-1979 to construct his next more powerful devices, including the bomb used in an attempt to bring down an American Airlines jet. In the fall, he borrowed his brother's car, ostensibly to travel to Canada to locate a possible new home. Instead, he returned to his cabin in Montana after purchasing materials in Great Falls. There he constructed the faulty airline bomb before returning to Illinois to mail it. When this failed, he again returned to Lincoln to construct the bomb that injured Percy Wood, returning to Chicago by bus to mail the package. Following the detonation of the wood bomb, law enforcement noticed a lull in any new attacks and wondered if perhaps the mysterious bomber had ended this activity. He did not. Much later, Kaczynski admitted that this pause was only due to his determination to construct more lethal devices. During this time period, the Gehrings recalled hearing occasional unexplained explosions from deep in the woods, clearly not gunfire, but something else more powerful. It was Teddy the Hermit experimenting. These experiments resulted in another attack on October 8, 1981. In the third floor hallway of the University of Utah Business School, a maintenance man cleaning up after hours noticed a shoebox-sized parcel on the ground beneath a window. The wrapped package had no address, only random arrows and letters written in ballpoint ink. When the worker picked up the box, it set off a booby trap process designed to ignite a one-gallon gas can filled with gasoline. Had the device functioned properly, it would have precipitated an explosion that certainly would have killed the worker and possibly any nearby students. But nothing happened, and the device was safely removed to a nearby bathroom and diffused. It was clearly stamped with the FC identifier. On May 5, 1982, a package was received at the Vanderbilt University office of Professor Patrick Carl Fisher, a nationally respected computer science academic. Because Ted Kaczynski frequently used reference books at the Lincoln, Montana Public Library, he affixed Professor Fisher's address at a former position at Penn State. He also used already canceled Eugene O'Neill stamps, perhaps attempting to prompt the U.S. Postal Service to refuse the parcel and return it to its return address of an electrical engineering professor at Brigham Young University. Not only did the post office not return the package, it even forwarded it to Professor Fisher's latest posting at Vanderbilt. Fisher was on sabbatical, but in any case, his secretary, Janet Smith, opened up all of his mail. When she unwrapped the parcel, it triggered a metal explosive device contained in a wooden box. It exploded, injuring Janet Smith with shrapnel wounds to the face, chest, and arms. Transported to a hospital, she survived these wounds. Fisher himself was completely mystified by why he had been chosen for this attack, but his background did include a brief connection to the University of Michigan. Another bomb quickly followed. Perhaps this renewed zeal had something to do with more difficulty on the domestic front. Kaczynski becoming so irritated by his brother in 1982 that he bought out David's 50% share in the Montana property. At any rate, Ted's new experimentation produced another much more complicated device that was not mailed but placed in a fourth-floor break room next to the Corey Hall Electronics Research Lab on the Cal Berkeley campus. At 7.45 a.m. on July 2, 1982, an electrical engineering professor and director of the research lab named Diogenes Angelakos entered the room and noticed an intricately wired wooden box on top of what seemed to be a paint can. When Angelakos picked up the can, an eight-and-a-half-inch pipe bomb exploded. The pipe bomb was sealed within the gallon can of gasoline. Because the can was completely filled with fuel, it did not ignite. Nevertheless, three fingers and the professor's right hand were seriously injured, and metal shrapnel was embedded in his face. But he remained conscious, noticing a small piece of paper fluttering to the floor. Examined later, it bore the cryptic words, quote, Woo, it works. I told you it would. RV. 
unquote. Perhaps this paper attached to the upper box, which also featured ornamental dials that served no purpose, was meant to induce someone to examine and then detonate the device. Angelakos would survive, but his right hand was permanently damaged, and he would need to relearn how to use writing implements. Investigators were totally baffled, especially by the note. It was impossible for them to link two math professors, Robert Vaught, possibly the relevant RV, and Professor Hung Si Wu to their former colleague Ted Kaczynski, whose previous Campbell Hall office was only blocks away from the site of the explosion. And then again for almost three years, nothing. The popular culture image of the Unabomber was that he was completely cut off from civilization and people, rarely even interacting with anyone. But that wasn't the case. Many of his distant neighbors observed him usually riding his bicycle into town. One, Glenn Williams, a hunter who owned a nearby cabin, routinely went deer hunting successfully with Kaczynski. Williams even bought Ted an elk hunting tag when Ted said he couldn't afford it, saying they would go 50-50 on the meat if Kaczynski was able to bag one of the animals. Just let me know if you get one, and I'll bring out my 4 by 4 Kaczynski did shoot an elk and, true to his word, got a hold of Williams, who helped him drag the carcass seven miles out of the deep wilderness. Kaczynski also had a routine when bicycling into Lincoln. First, he would hit the post office for any mail. Then the Lincoln Community Library, where he would take out complex books, frequently written in Spanish or German, ordered on reserve from another library. Then scientific periodicals and whatever newspapers that were available. He certainly struck the head librarian, Sherry Wood, as quirky, but even after his arrest, and despite prodding from national media, she remained positive about his great sense of humor and his interaction with her son. Wood's child was intelligent for his age and was being ridiculed by his classmates. Kaczynski took the time to tell the boy not to worry. He had great parents, he was a smart kid, and he would be fine. After the library, it was on to the Blackfoot Market, where the owner, Karen Potter, always noticed him. She described Ted as quiet, sweet, always walking with his head down. When she once mentioned that she hadn't seen him in a while, he visibly reacted and said, thank you for your concern. Instead of the word okay, he repeatedly used the phrase quite correct. Kaczynski loaded his backpack with five-pound bags of flour to make bread, spam, canned tuna, and salmon and fruit. This to subsidize the game he was occasionally able to shoot with one of two hunting rifles he kept in his cabin. But not everybody was warm and fuzzy with Ted. When Butch Gehring divorced his first wife and remarried, his second wife, Wendy, was never comfortable with Teddy the Hermit, based on one of her first interactions. One day she was cleaning her cabin, partially clothed, when she became aware of someone watching her through the window. It was Ted, who then knocked on the front door. When she answered after putting on some more clothing, Kaczynski asked her if she could tell him the day of the week and the time. Although probably a predictable question from a reclusive technophobe living in the Montana wilderness, it certainly flustered her. The next time Kaczynski wandered by with the same question, she told him that it was time for him to get a watch, adding an expletive for emphasis, and then shut the door in his face. Later, she would say in their 13-year interaction, she never trusted him and he always made her nervous, an intuition that was eventually proven justifiable. Although Kaczynski did not carry out any more attacks until 1985, he continued to spar with his brother and his parents with more childhood recriminations that his father ignored and only served to upset his mother. Despite even lashing out at her for any care packages of food she sent, he did not stop communicating with them. Too essential, the annual cash that they continued to send but in 1985, Kaczynski made the very familiar bus trip back to the Bay Area, intent on another delivery. On May 15, 1985, an Air Force captain and electrical engineering graduate student named John Hauser, working in the computer lab in Corey Hall on the Berkeley campus, noticed a small plastic box with a three-ring binder on top attached with a rubber band. Hauser did not know it, but other students had previously moved this impediment slightly, turning the binder so it was now situated like a closed book. Before, the spine of the binder was placed against the computer screen. Now the spine faced Hauser. Had he opened the device in its original position, he would have been killed instantly. Instead, the force of the ensuing blast went away from him towards a wall of the lab. 
Still, the explosion ripped his Air Force Academy ring clean off of his finger and stenciled the word Academy in the wall nearest Hauser. It also mangled Hauser's right arm and hand, blood pouring out through severed arteries. The first person to provide first aid was a professor who applied direct pressure to the wound and held Hauser's arm above his head and heart. Unbelievably, the next individual who rushed to Hauser's aid was Diogenes Angelakos, the previous Unabomber victim, who immediately employed his necktie to successfully apply a tourniquet to the gaping wound. Medics rushed Hauser out of the building, his right arm seriously damaged with permanent nerve damage that required extensive rehabilitation and ended any hopes of Hauser, an aspiring astronaut, of ever even flying again. Although he received a medical discharge from the Air Force, he did eventually continue a career as a teacher at the University of Southern California. Kaczynski again struck from the San Francisco Bay Area. This time he mailed an extremely complex device to an outpost of the Boeing Aircraft Company in Auburn, Washington. But an astute mail clerk noticed that the parcel, which contained a 14-inch long steel pipe bomb, was not addressed to anyone in particular and notified King County law enforcement. The bomb squad x-rayed the package, determined it was a bomb, dismantled it, and then detonated the weapon, leaving a treasure trove of material, which all eventually proved to be untraceable. Having failed in this latest attempt, Kaczynski resorted to an older, more successful ploy. Using an alias, he contacted a University of Michigan professor, James V. McConnell. McConnell was a research psychologist who studied a chemical basis for memory and publicly stated that in the future he believed human beings would be programmed by pharmaceuticals. Such a perspective, which got McConnell attention in such publications as the New York Times and even People magazine, was bound to especially enraged Kaczynski, obsessed with the concept of artificial mass societal control. In a one-page letter, Kaczynski, writing as a University of Utah graduate student, named Ralph C. Kloppenberg, requested that the professor read his book-length doctoral dissertation that would be forthcoming in a future mailing. The envelope had no return address, but was postmarked in Salt Lake City. Thus, when Professor McConnell's assistant, Nicholas Suino, received such an appropriately sized parcel in McConnell's Ann Arbor home, he opened it while standing in McConnell's kitchen. It promptly exploded. Suino was struck by metal shrapnel in his upper torso and suffered burns on both legs and the left side of his body. McConnell, who deeply loved music, suffered permanent hearing damage. Suino did recover, but could have easily been killed, one piece of shrapnel tearing a six-inch gash in a kitchen cabinet. The FBI determined that the bomb, stamped with the FC identifier, was composed of ammonium nitrate and aluminum flakes, a far more deadly compound than materials scraped from matchheads. Less than a month later, Kaczynski again undertook his now familiar pattern of bomb delivery, only this time, not satisfied with merely seriously injuring people, he would personally find the perfect location to ensure fatality. A postman he was familiar with frequently gave him rides to Helena. From there, depending on his destination, he would either stay in the same cheap $9 a night hotel room or just immediately get on a bus that took him to some larger transit point. On this occasion, he went from Butte to Idaho Falls to Salt Lake City to his final destination, Sacramento, a journey that took 25 and a half hours. Once there, he checked into a cheap motel and began to scour the neighborhood for an appropriate location. Hugh Scruton ran a computer rental store in a strip mall in the urban sprawl outside of Sacramento's city center. On December 11, 1985, he was leaving the rear entrance of his store for an appointment when something propped against a dumpster near his back door attracted his attention. It was a four-inch by 12-inch block of wood that had nails oddly protruding in a way that made it look like it might puncture a tire or injure someone if they stepped on it. The explosive device had two separate battery-powered electrical systems to detonate the three separate pipe bombs contained within a wooden box. Any movement would trigger a spring and an internal lever that would initiate detonation. The pipes were packed with four separate explosive components, including potassium chloride and potassium sulfate. The wooden box also contained nails and shards of metal. 
This was meant to be a lethal device. Leaning over the piece of wood, Scruton must have been irritated that someone would be so careless as to leave such a potentially harmful piece of trash so close to the dumpster. What additional effort could it take to just open the lid and toss this junk away? He leaned over and picked up the block of wood, which immediately detonated. The bomb blew off his right hand, sent shrapnel deep into his chest cavity, the force of the blast exposing his heart. His right ankle was completely fractured. Employees came to the back of the store only to see Scruton standing in the doorway for a moment before he screamed for help and then collapsed onto the pavement. Although another worker from a nearby store attempted CPR, Scruton died in the doorway of his store, despite officially being pronounced dead at the UC Davis Medical Center, aged 38. Thank you for listening to part one of this podcast about Ted Kaczynski. Much of the information for this podcast came from the books Every Last Tie by David Kaczynski, Unabomber, A Desire to Kill by Robert Graysmith, Unabomber, The Secret Life of Ted Kaczynski by Chris Waits, Harvard and the Unabomber by Alston Chase, and Madman in the Woods by Jamie Gehring. There are also additional photographs bibliographical and musical information at someveryfamouspeople.com. If you have enjoyed this presentation, please like us at our Facebook page, Some Very Famous People, and follow us on Twitter at Philip D. Gibbons. Also rate us on iTunes, and if you have the time, leave a brief review. A link is provided at the website. (laughs) 